As we uh, resume our study in the book of Luke today, I want to make sure that I invite you uh, to, uh, to bring your Bibles out. If you don't have a Bible with you or you don't have a Bible of your own that you can easily read and understand, then please use one of ours. We, we have some here for ex exactly that purpose, not just for you to be able to read on a Sunday morning, but for you to be able to take with you so that you have a Bible that you can work through, uh, that you can write in and mark up and wear out. And if you wear it out, we'll get you another one. But uh, if you need a Bible today, just raise your hand and uh, Michael will make sure that you've got one because you want to make sure that you are getting the Word of God, not just what is filtered through a human vessel. So um, you want to get a hold of God's Word. As we get into this today, we are resuming our Dear Theophilus series, this journey through the Gospel of Luke. And as, uh, as we walk through this, we come to a story. It's really two stories. I, I would call it two scenes because they're telling one key story. And they're coming together to let us know some really crucial information for our everyday lives. Because we're going to face things in life, if you don't know this already, then you've probably been in a coma until now. We're going to face things in life that are overwhelming, that are too much for us to handle. And we see it coming and we are afraid. And we are overcome and we are depressed. If you know what I'm talking about, then already before we get started, there is a certain heaviness that is hanging behind your heart right now. Some of you in this moment, as you come today, are coming to this place hoping that God will say something to you through the music or through His Word that will help lift some of that heaviness. Because life is can be so overwhelming. Amen? Amen? Here's the thing. Luke wants us to know, as he's been working through the story of Christ's uh, earthly ministry, his life on earth physically, he's been establishing the foundation of our faith. He writes to Theophilus and through Theophilus to us that we might know the certainty the absolute rock-solid believability and sureness of what we've been taught. And in chapter 8, verses 22 to 39, Luke is expressly recording two things, also recorded in Matthew and in Mark, but he's expressly recording two things for the purpose of establishing in our minds and hearts that Jesus isn't out there somewhere. That this isn't a religious practice, a set of beliefs to adhere to, but this is a person who is himself God and ruler of all things, and he's on your side. He is with us. In fact, that's our core reality for today. As we work through this, this is the focus that Luke has, that draws these two scenes together into one story, with Christ on our side, we have nothing to fear. Now, I spent a lot of time trying to come up with something really clever to say. And all of the clever things that I could come up with felt like a distraction from the point. I don't want us to get caught up in, in some catchy little phrase, but to realize that God wants you to know this. With Christ on our side, 
We have nothing to fear. Now, that doesn't mean you're not going to be afraid. Amen? We're going to have fears. We're going to have stresses. We're going to have things that make us angry, that really dig down, and we can't understand, and we, we can't really find the right explanation for it. And because of that, then we end up maybe questioning our faith and questioning God. I want you to know it's not because there's a reason for the fear. It's just who we are. We're human. We're limited. We're made from the dirt. So it's not surprising that we would be weak-willed and frail. God knows this. And he's near to the brokenhearted. And as we walk through these two very familiar stories today, you've been familiar with them. Even if you've never read the Bible before, you've heard these things or have been influenced by it. They're, they're central to American culture where Jesus calms the storm and where Jesus casts out demons into a herd of pigs. But the point is this, say it with me, with Christ on our side, we have nothing to fear. So if you haven't already opened your Bibles to Luke chapter 8, that's where we want to be. In Luke chapter 8, we've gone through seeing, uh, seeing Jesus give the parable of the sower, or the, really I would call it the parable of the soils, and he's talked about how uh, the word of God is, is sown by the farmer, the Lord, and there are four different responses to that that he talks about. And, and he brings out this idea that a light, or a lamp I should say, has a purpose of illuminating. And so when we receive God's word, it's good seed, and if our, if our response to it is good soil, then that good seed in good soil will always bring forth a harvest, just like a lamp, when it's not covered up, will always illuminate. That's the reason that the farmer plants the seed. That's the reason the homeowner lights the lamp. There's a purpose to it. And now he, he's transitioning. We go out of that scene to a, a place where Jesus and his disciples decide they're going to cross over to the other side of the lake, the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Let's pick up with verse 22. One day Jesus said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and set out. As they sailed, he fell asleep. A squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger. The disciples went and woke him saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown. He got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters. Don't, don't let that pass by without letting it sink into your mind. Jesus was asleep and he gets up and he actually speaks to the wind. He rebukes the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided. And all was calm. Notice this next question. It's so telling. Where is your faith? He asked his disciples. In fear and amazement, they asked one another, Who is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. Scene change. They sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, uh, Matthew, they call it the Gadarenes, but it's two different cities identified with that region. 
They sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which was across the lake from Galilee. So they went from the north to the south. They're a little bit closer to Jerusalem now than they were because they're on the other side of the lake. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. A little freaky? When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had, been, had not worn clothes. Okay, it's getting freakier as, as we go along here. So, he's demon-possessed to begin with. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes, very evident that he doesn't live in Michigan, or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs, in the cemetery. When he saw Jesus... He cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the evil spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and been driven by the demon into solitary places. Jesus asked him, What is your name? Legion, he replied because many demons had gone into him. And they begged him repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into them, and he gave them permission. That seems like a weird verse, doesn't it? Let it sink in for just a minute. They begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs, and he gave them permission. When the demons came out of the man... They went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When those tending the pigs saw what happened, they ran off and reported this in the town and countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. They found the man who was previously naked, wild, violent, uncontrollable, dressed and in his right mind, sitting at Jesus' feet. And now they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. Then all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and left. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him, but Jesus sent him away saying, Return home and tell how much God has done for you. Read that line with me. Return home and tell how much God has done for you. Notice Luke does not miss a beat here in making sure that we get this point. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. Luke does not want us to miss that Jesus is God. Let's pray as we go into this. Heavenly Father, you alone are the master of the wind and the waves. You alone command demons to flee. And when you are on our side, perhaps more to the point when we are on your side, we have nothing to fear. There's not one bit of trouble in this life or beyond that can come into our lives that is in any way a surprise to you, that is in any way a challenge to you. 
So Lord, as we explore this text today, help us to recognize that Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, is worthy of our trust. May we put our hope in him. We pray this in his name. Amen. As we uh, go through this story, this idea hinges on the, the, the story hinges on the idea that with Christ on our side, we, our side, we have nothing to fear. It's a new mouth. I'm still figuring it out. Jesus rules over every storm in our lives. Every storm there is, whether it's around us or within us. Jesus is able to calm the storm of our circumstances. He's able to calm the storm inside my soul. And many of us have wrestled with overwhelmingly difficult circumstances. As I look through this room, I, I know all, so many of you are going through trouble right now. Some of you have lost your children. Some of you have lost them to death. Others have lost them to the world. And it's overwhelming. Some of you right now are fighting cancer. And it's scary. Some of you have a tidal wave of financial burden about to crash down over your life. And it can take you down. For many others of us here in the room, we have a storm inside of us as we wrestle with the devil day and night things that we want to have corrected in our lives behaviors attitudes language addictions and we just seem to wrestle and struggle and wrestle and struggle and we think it's going to take us down i can't ever get past this i'll never get it fixed you need to know that Jesus rules over those storms, whether they're inside you or outside you. And with Christ on your side, you have nothing to fear. Now notice, they get in the boat. And as you walk through this story with me, hopefully you'll, you'll see how directly these things connect to our lives. They, <clears throat> they get in the boat, and it's calm. It's so calm that Jesus is asleep. Now, that seems like the logical choice of who you would have go take a nap because the carpenter probably isn't the one you want sailing the boat. Although if it's Jesus, he can do whatever he wants. I'm good. But you've got fishermen. Most of these guys are used to being on a boat. They're experienced on the Sea of Galilee. And they know, maybe you didn't, but they do, that the Sea of Galilee in particular is prone to sudden violent storms. It can be calm as glass, and out of the blue, boom, overwhelming, you know, George Clooney perfect storm kind of weather, right? Just boom, everything blows up on you. And that's what happens here. So this isn't new for them. They've unquestionably been in storms repeatedly. Not a shocker. This must have been a really big storm because now these professional boats people have been so scared, they think they're going to drown. Master, master, what in the world are we going to do? The circumstances came on them suddenly, and they weren't ready for it. They thought they were ready for it. Their training made them ready for it. Their experience, it seems like it should have made them ready for it, right? But it was bigger than they were able to handle. And they weren't going to be able to sail through this on their own. At least that was their perception. 
One way or another, these guys were overcome with fear because the chaos around them, the, the circumstances that suddenly jumped on them were beyond what their minds could process and beyond what their skills could control. When that happens in our lives, that, that sort of uncertainty brings an anxiety that is inevitable. It's hard to get away from that. Maybe it's, it's something as simple as just being on the job and something goes wrong and you don't really know how you're going to fix it. You're not sure how your customer or your boss is going to respond to it and, and you get a little trepidation. How am I going to make this work? Maybe it was your fault. How am I going to spin this? How am I going to correct this situation? Or what excuses and lies will I tell? But we get in situations like this that surprise us. And, and this chaotic nature of life can very easily cause us to despair. Just like they do here. To despair because I can't fix this and I really don't know what to do about it. Because I can't fix it, the... I need something bigger than me. And they go to the master, they go to Jesus, and they say, Lord, we're going to drown. Can't you save us? Notice, he doesn't really freak out. Jesus doesn't like, oh, my God. You know, that's what I would do. You know, if I'm napping in the boat, I'm going to wake up. I'm going to make weird noises and try to make sure everybody's awake during the sermon. And if you have ever been around me when I've fallen asleep, my family can say amen to this. And you wake me up suddenly, you never know what might happen. Jesus just wakes up. And he gets out. He goes right out on the bow where the storm is. And he says, storm, chill out. Be still. We're done here. There's no indication that Jesus goes through some magical incantation. We don't see that anywhere else in Scripture. Jesus doesn't pray just the right words in just the right way. We do that in religion so often. If I pray this prayer in this way at this time, then God will act. Jesus doesn't need to. There's just authority. So when he speaks to the storm, it's over. The storm doesn't argue. The storm doesn't debate. And the chaos is turned to calm. The, the whole situation flips. And the question that he asks is a, a mild rebuke. There's a gentle rebuke to it. But it's not like Jesus is going off on him. Man, you idiots, what is wrong with you? And the question, where is your faith, is not simply Christ being disappointed that they didn't have faith, but where did they put their faith? In other words, what is the object of your faith? And that's a question you and I have to ask ourselves every day in every situation. It's not, I would mark this down, it's not how much faith you have. How much faith you have depends on you and isn't really relevant to the situation in general. Where is your faith? Is your faith in your ability to handle your circumstances? Because you're 
good enough and you're smart enough and doggone it, people like you? Is it that you're skilled and experienced enough to overcome it? Because that is not the faith that we're talking about when we're, when we're talking about living by faith and not by sight. That's faith placed in yourself. Placed in your own understanding, your own ability to control your circumstances. The, the spiritual faith, the faith of the Christian life, looks a lot like Proverbs verses three, five, chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord. Trust in whom? Lord. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. How much of your heart? All. With all your heart. And lean not on your own understanding. Should you lean on your own understanding? This is what Jesus is asking them. Where's your faith? Are you trusting in the Lord with all your heart? Or are you leaning on your own understanding? Yes, there is a rebuke. There's a, a disappointment of sorts, although that's a little bit of an awkward word to use. But I think we understand. Yeah, you should have some faith. But he knows them. Nothing's a surprise to him. Why aren't you trusting in me? I love the way the message renders it as you go through the text. That same question says, why can't you trust me? How often is he asking you and me that question? Why can't you trust me? It's not because he's not worthy of trust. And that's the point of these two stories is to show us that with Christ on our side, there is nothing to fear. There is nothing that can happen to this boat that's going to thwart God's plan. Right? Does that make sense to everybody? Do, do we get that? So if suddenly God's caught off guard by this storm, whoops, didn't see that coming, and the Messiah is drowned in this situation, that we're in a bad way. But nothing catches God off guard. God has never said whoops. Never. So when the storm comes up, it surprises his followers. It doesn't surprise Jesus. It certainly doesn't surprise the Father. Jesus just says, be still. That's it. Whatever you're going through in your circumstances, Jesus is able to do that as well when that is the right time. When they were being swamped in this boat, it wasn't time for the storm to be calm yet. When it was the right time, Jesus rebuked the storm and it subsided. Prior to that, they needed that storm. Did he say that? Yeah, yeah, he did. They needed that storm. You and I needed this storm or we wouldn't be able to have this sermon in this chapter. We need to be able to see what God is telling us. But we need the storms in our lives as well. These are the things that teach us, that test us, that try us. Jesus was always worthy of their trust. They couldn't trust him because they hadn't been in that situation yet. But you better believe they get another storm on the lake. Maybe they did, but it's not worth writing about. Because the next time it's like, Jesus is here. We're good. So that's, that's really what's drawing this whole story in. Where's your faith? As we get into the next scene and we begin to look at this demoniac, this, this demon-possessed man, 
the question still comes down to where are you going to put your faith? You and I are going to do battle with the devil. Whether you know it or not, you're doing battle with demons all the time. You may not recognize it. You may not uh, be conscious of it. You may not even believe it. You may be in denial. That just means you're losing. Because the reality of it is, Satan hates you. The devil and his minions, his demons, I had to say minions at some point, hate you. Because they hate God. And you, as humans, are the pinnacle of his creation. All human beings, everyone ever born, everyone ever conceived, bears the image of God, made in his image. The imago Dei. We bear God's image in us. Long before we ever come to Him in relationship, we have His mark in us. No matter what anybody wants to tell you, there is no evolution beyond humanity. That's not how things work. The truth of the matter is, God created humanity exactly the way He wanted it to be. And you and I are hated by the enemies of God. Even before you're a Christ follower. The devil doesn't need to try to wreck you when you're on his side, but he still hates you. And he wants to bring destruction into your life. The demons in this man's life hate him and want to bring destruction into his life because they hate God. Let's follow the story. After Jesus calms the storm, they get, to the other, they get to the other side of the lake in what is called here the region of the Gerasenes. The town nearby is Gerasa. Another one is Gadara. It's across the lake from Galilee. And when Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from this town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes. He had not lived in a house, lived in the tombs. Now, before we go any farther, let me just try to give you a picture of these tombs. Some of your translations may say lived in the cemetery. That's true. But it's not like the cemeteries that we see here. When I get that image in my mind, I picture going out to Riverside or you know Forest Lawn or Posey Chapel or someplace and you've got all these tombstones and you know maybe a couple of mausoleums out there. This, the tombs were holes in the hill, caves, where multiple bodies were buried, not embalmed the way we do now. They didn't have the same processes. They were buried with spices. They were wrapped. They were put in there. And you know what dead bodies do in Middle Eastern heat in an enclosed space? They decompose and they rot. I hate to burst your bubble if you think that there is something more sacred about these physical bodies of ours. The sanctity that we have in life is, is the Lord's image in us. But our bodies are compost. It will be that way for every single one of us, always. And I make no apologies for bringing you down on that. 
aside from the fact that I just apologized, but never mind. So <laughs> as they're going to these, these tombs, the, this man is being driven to live in places where bodies are rotting. Among the skeletons, among the tombs, his shelter would be in the caves where bodies are buried. Yuck. The demons inside of him are driving him through force and through fear to do things that no sane person would ever want. Still happens today. We get driven as the devil controls our minds, not through possession as much, although that happens. In this case, they're actually dwelling in him and controlling him. That can't happen in the life of a believer because the Holy Spirit is in you. But we still listen to the lies. We still get intimidated. We still get deceived, distracted, and discouraged. And so when that happens, we end up doing things that in our right minds we would never choose to do. Because the fear has enslaved us. The foolishness has enslaved us. And we need to be set free from that. Nobody in their right mind says, you know, I'm, I'm going to give up my house. I'm going to go live among the tombs with the dead people. And just for the fun of it, I'm going to spend a couple of years running around naked. Because that's socially awkward. This is not just humorous. You're out in the weather. Remember, they just had a storm that came up that almost drowned the guys on this boat, right? Same neighborhood. It's on this lake. This is just offshore. Storm comes through that stirs up the Sea of Galilee so much that it's about to drown professional sailors. This guy doesn't have clothes or a home because the demons inside of him have enslaved him and driven him to a place where everything that makes sense doesn't make sense anymore. Hard life. The harm, the pain, the suffering in this man's life is constant. So much so that he actually has lost his own sense of self and he doesn't see it. The man who is possessed doesn't even know he's possessed. He doesn't know that these are demons. He thinks these are his thoughts. So when Jesus asks him his name... He gives the name of the demons because his own personality doesn't even matter anymore. He's so united with this. This happens to us so often, even to believers, not in the sense of possession. Again, I, I, I don't mean to repeat that. I just want to make sure we get it. That doesn't happen in the life of those uh, who are possessed by the Spirit of God. But we do get so fixated on our past, our addictions, our issues. We define ourselves according to the devil's lies and accusations. And we see our sins, those things that we've done, and we think that's who we are. We see the devil's handiwork in our lives, and we think that's who we are, and we are not. We are defined by the king of all creation, and you are either with him or you are not. It really is that simple. You are not defined by your political party, by your sexual orientation, 
by your skin color, by your economic background. These are not definitions of who you are. And we need to slay that because those are lies from the devil. And I'm not saying that like some preacher, those lies from the devil. No, those are lies that come from the devil. And if you believe that, you are believing literally the words of the enemy of your soul. This man does. He's so enslaved by it that there is nothing else. When Jesus shows up, this man, so closely associated with these demons, cries out. It's the demons inside him, but it's his mouth. It's the same thing as far as his experience. Jesus, what are you doing here? What do we have in common? Why are you here? Don't torture me. Please don't torture me. This man is crying this out. It's the demons inside putting these thoughts and moving his lips. But it's the man thinking that Jesus is going to torture him. But Jesus is here to deliver him, to take away the fear, to take away the bondage, to remove all of that stuff that keeps him living a life that he would never want to live if he were in his right mind. And Jesus doesn't get freaked out by it. Remember, he's God. So when the demons end up freaking the man out, which is what happens, we listen to those lies, and we as humans get consumed with the things that we see. Whether that's a storm on the lake, or the voice of the enemy in our ears, we get consumed by those things. It's interesting to me that these demons beg Jesus to let them go into the pigs. Now, without spending too much time, the, the place of eternal torment for the demons is referred to as the abyss in the book of Revelation. And there is a time when they will all be cast in there. And elsewhere, we have seen in, earlier in Luke um, this reference to, have you come to judge us before the appointed time? Well, if the judge judges you, it is the appointed time. But that aside, these demons recognize that they will one day be in the abyss, and they plead with Jesus not to do that. I don't know why Jesus does what he does other than his sovereignty. God's plan is God's plan. And he allows them, he gives them permission to go into this herd of pigs. Now, a couple of things stand out. One, these demonic beings, don't mess with the spiritual realm, by the way. It's these demonic beings are so bent on doing harm and destruction that even if they can't get this guy, they got to destroy something. They're, they're, they're going to cause some sort of harm and, and turmoil and hardship. Please don't, don't send us to the abyss. Send us into the pigs. I don't know what happens after the pigs drown. If they're loose on the earth, we're not told that. We could speculate, but that seems pointless. The point is, they are bent on destruction. Just as they were in this man's life, it is their nature. And when the devil lies to you to make things seem right that are wrong, to make things seem wrong that are right, it is because his nature is to steal, kill, and destroy. Do not believe the lies. But don't get caught up in believing that he has power over you. With Christ on our side, we have nothing to fear. 
So the demons are bent on destruction, but also it's interesting. The nature of demonic beings, the nature of devils, is rebellion, is it not? We don't see demons asking permission for much, do we? They didn't ask this man for permission to possess him. And the devil doesn't ask your permission to lie to you, to try to intimidate you. Jesus shows up, and all of a sudden they're begging for permission. Why? When John Wayne walks into a room, you know a real man just walked in, right? Times infinity. When the Son of God shows up, the demons shut down. They are done. Lord, you are Lord. Now understand, they don't submit to him voluntarily, and yet they recognize his power and authority. Isn't it funny that the demons recognize and even respond to Jesus better than his own followers? Isn't it sad and pathetic that so often the devil recognizes God's power and authority better than you and I do? They're freaked out looking for permission. His disciples in the boat are like, oh no, big storm, what are we going to do? Because they're focusing on all this stuff. Jesus is with them. Where's your faith? Here, as we're dealing with this uh, man who's possessed by demons, Jesus does a very simple thing. You notice it doesn't even tell us, doesn't show us him speaking to them, just says he did. As he gets there, he's already saying, you're out, bye, you're evicted. And he banishes them from, uh, from this man. But notice the transformation. Uh, verse 15, halfway through, when they came to Jesus, the, uh, the people from the town, when they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Now, it's not surprising for those who are tending the pigs to be a little bit afraid because they just lost a herd of pigs. Now, Luke doesn't tell us why there's a herd of pigs in the middle of Israel when this is an unclean food that, that just seems odd, right? This is where you'd be growing clean food, but they're growing these, this herd of unclean animals. Not that they don't have a purpose, but it's not explained. Interestingly, as you follow that, the unclean animals receive these demonic spirits and, and are removed from the scene. I don't know if it means anything. It's just interesting. But now, these folks are freaked out by the transformation from bad to good. Think about that. People are scared when Jesus changes a life. Whether it's this man or your life, your friends, even your enemies, those who are around you, are used to you being who you are. And some of you have tried to leave certain lifestyles and only faced friends who suck you back into it. Face people who oppose you, who don't want you to get out of it. They want to judge you by your past. It scares people when we are changed, even if the change is good. Some of you have experienced that. You know exactly what that feels like. I want to get out. 
but they keep dragging me back in. I want to get over, but the man keeps pushing me down. And that's what's happening here. They're freaked out because the pigs are gone. But they're freaked out also because the man has changed. Sad that they put more stock in the pigs than they do in the salvation and deliverance of their neighbor. How much we give up on when we focus on what we are used to and the things of this world rather than the things of God. Notice that the people overcome with fear, verse 17, the, all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear, so he did. He got into the boat and left. He doesn't protest, he doesn't picket, he doesn't sue them, he doesn't throw a fit, he doesn't yell and scream, he doesn't say you're a bunch of idiots, he just gets in the boat and leaves. We forfeit the presence of the Savior when we reject the priorities of the Savior. They reject what Jesus is doing because our pigs are gone. This man, we're so used to him being the neighborhood freak and now we don't know what to do. So this is freaky. This is scary. Everything's changing. I don't know what to do about it. Uh, this is too much. Jesus, please leave. Sometimes the people who will oppose you, will oppose you most in your discipleship are those who are most religious in your life. They don't want you to change. I look around here in this room and I could go person by person. So many of us have had conversations like this. Where you were raised a certain way and your parents were really, really upset when you actually discovered Jesus instead of the church. When you got caught up in the religion of your upbringing, that was one thing. But when you got caught up in a personal relationship with the Savior that changed you, wait a minute, you mean you're telling me we didn't raise you right? You're rejecting how we brought you up? Are you saying I'm going to hell? That I don't know God? That's hard. Sometimes the biggest opposition comes from those who are most religious in our lives. They see that here. But notice, in all of this difficulty, in all of the pain, Jesus gives him an assignment. The man wants to go with him. This is how the scene ends for us. Verse uh, 38. The man from whom the demons had gone out, he begged to go with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, Return home and tell how much God has done for you. Interesting, in the next story, still in this chapter even, uh, we're going to see Jesus say, don't tell anybody. But here, his purpose, his message is, look, go, let them see the difference in your life and tell them what God has done for you. And he does, and he goes and he tells them. And as Luke points out, he's talking about Jesus and the deliverance that he has. All right, now let's get to your outline. We'll knock this stuff out real fast. <clears throat> Remember, the whole point of this is that with Christ on our side, we have nothing to fear. I really want to take you to a whole bunch of scriptures. I'm probably only going to take you to a few, but I want to get through these, uh, fill in the blanks for you so you can knock this out. First, when life brings chaos, Christ brings calm. When life brings chaos, 
Christ brings calm. Whether it's the chaos of a sudden, unexpected storm. Whatever that storm of circumstance is in your life that just drops on you. Everything's good and then boom, just gets slammed. Or that chaos inside as you can't seem to get right in your heart and soul. You're doing battle with the devil and it's not going well. You're losing. In either of those cases, whether it's an external storm or an internal storm, life tends to bring us chaos. Jesus brings us calm. Why? Because the question is, where's your faith? Is your faith in people are basically good? Good luck with that. You'll be disappointed regularly. Is your faith in, well, I just trust that everything's going to work out? It's not. So get over it. Because life doesn't just work out. Sometimes the good guys die young. Or is your faith going to be in the fact that there is somebody greater, somebody bigger, somebody wiser who has a plan, has all of this under control, and when you can't handle it, he can. And if you're on his side, the storms can rage all they want. They can't touch you. Secondly, when life brings fear, Christ brings freedom. When life brings fear, Christ brings freedom. We get enslaved by our fears. We get trapped. We get bogged down in it. And those fears may manifest themselves in any number of things. Those insecurities, those places where we have anxiety. We don't quite know how to fill in the gaps. And sometimes it makes us angry and the rage comes up and takes over. And sometimes it makes us sad and we get depressed and we start to shut down. Sometimes it makes us just despair and we even contemplate suicide. And in the midst of all of this, Jesus wants to set you free from that bondage. We need to let go of all of those things and take hold of Him. When Christ is on our side, we have nothing to fear. Thirdly, when life brings harm, how many of you know life brings harm? When life brings harm, Christ brings healing. When life brings harm, Christ brings healing. Understand, bad things really do happen. We're not preaching a faith that says, well, eventually it's just all going to be a bowl of cherries. You know, if you're faithful enough, if you trust Him enough, if you read your Bible enough, if you never miss church, then God's going to make you prosper and everything's going to go right in your life and you're not going to lose your job and your marriage isn't going to fall apart and your children aren't going to rebel and the doctor's report isn't going to have the big C in there. Guys, they actually really did have a storm. And they actually really did find real danger, mortal danger. And this guy actually really was out of his mind from demonic influence. Ask the people who saw him running around naked. They know it. It really does happen. And yet, Christ brings healing. When it's time for the circumstances to change, he changes the circumstance. And when it's not, then he changes you. Sometimes he calms the storm. Other times he calms his child. When the storm is internal, he deals with that. A demon, 
a legion of demons is nothing for God. You're gone. See ya. Transformed, clothed in his right mind. But notice what happens. When he's transformed, he's sitting at Jesus' feet. That's an indication that he's learning and studying. The rabbis would sit to teach. And an eager student would sit at their feet to get the information. This man's like, teach me, Jesus. Give me more. You've saved me. You've delivered me. You've taken the fear away. Now I'm free. Now you've healed me. You've undone what was harming me. i got to know more. i gotta, I got to have a relationship developing here. Lord, tell me. Teach me. Use me. Take me with you. Let me be one of your disciples. Interestingly, he lets the women earlier in the chapter who were delivered from demons come with him. Sometimes he does. Sometimes he's got other plans. For this man, he says, go home and tell everybody there. You're going to be my missionary to your home. You're going to be my witness in your home, in your hometown. When life brings harm, Christ brings healing. Lastly, and, and I don't know about you, but for me, this is perhaps the most important on a personal level. When life brings pain, Christ brings purpose. When life brings pain, and it so often does, Christ brings purpose. Think of the relationships, the bridges this man burned in the months, maybe years, that he was out of his mind, wild, mentally ill, we would call it today, had what we might term dissociative uh, identity disorder today. We used to call it multiple personalities. The guy's out of his mind by any standard. Notice he's not with relatives who are taking care of him. He's out in the tombs. He's violent. He's out of control. Even when they try to restrain him, he breaks the bonds with fits of unnatural strength. You think he didn't burn some bridges? Ruin relationships that will maybe never be restored. Maybe they will. Pain. And yet in all of it, Christ brings purpose to that. Yes, go and tell them what you've been delivered from and let them see you. Don't go to the door naked. They won't understand. Put your clothes on. Show them that you're not Captain Nutso anymore. I apologize for, for making light of this. I'm, not, I'm really not trying to make light of it. I really want us to get it. Because some of us here in this room have lived like Captain Nutso. We've done our thing so much that you're, you've been the life of the party. And people have loved you. They just haven't respected you. And they've looked at you as that guy or that woman. And as you're going through this, <laughs> man, do you realize Jesus has a purpose for you? And it's not just so you can have your best life now and, and get yourself settled in and you can have a, a more prosperous life and a better reputation. Those might be byproducts of it. So you can be His. So the Father can be glorified by your transformation. And as you change, people notice. When life brings pain... 
Christ brings purpose. There is a purpose in the pain. I'm going to take you to just two passages before we wrap this up because we need to see them. The first is Isaiah. Now, if you open your Bible to the middle, you'll probably find the Psalms. Go to the right a little bit, you'll find the book of Isaiah. Fairly easy to find because it's one of the bigger books. That's why it's called, why he's called one of the major prophets because they're very wordy. They write a lot. Big book means you're major. Little book means you're minor. Isaiah, when you find it, I would really love to take you to chapter 41, but we're going to jump right to chapter 43. A little background. Isaiah is a prophet who's been called, he, he spends probably more time than just about anybody talking about the coming Messiah. But Isaiah's been called to a people in exile, or who are in exile and being exiled and about to see more exile. And he talks about what God uh, is doing through this. As God brings the Babylonian army to capture them. But then, when it's time, God brings in another army to capture the Babylonians. Because God doesn't abandon His people. But He does bring in, as we read earlier in the Psalms, God does bring in trouble. Israel recognized the Lord put us in prison. The Lord put us in irons. The Lord allowed people to ride over our heads. And yet, He brought us out of that. Notice what happens here. Keep in mind, Jesus in the boat with His disciples as we read from Isaiah chapter 43. And I'm going to try to stop myself from reading the whole thing. But now this is what the Lord says, speaking to Israel. He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. He says that to Israel, but if you are in Christ, he is saying that to you as well. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, there's an implicit truth here, by the way. It doesn't say if, does it? What's he say? When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. How powerful is that? When, everybody say when. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt for your ransom, Cush and Seba in your stead. Since you are precious and honored in my sight, and because I love you, I will give men in exchange for you, and people in exchange for your life. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. The promise of God is not that you won't go through the water and the fire, but that He will be with you. He will lift up your head. Turn to Romans chapter 8. All the way to the right past Luke. Once you get past Luke, you see John, Acts, and then Romans. If you've been at real life for a while, you probably already knew we were going to go here. Paul, the artist formerly known as Saul, 
who was a Jewish rabbi, a Pharisee, well-educated, knew the ins and outs of Scripture. Before he ever surrendered to Christ, he knew the information, but his heart was hard and far from God. But as he took that information that God had, had always spoken to his people Israel, and he began for the first time to really understand it because he knew Jesus Christ himself personally. It took on new meaning for him. Knowing that God the Father loved us so much, as Paul writes in Romans 5.8, that while we were yet sinners... Not when we were good people, not when we were religious people, not when we had cleaned up our act, but while you were in the gutter and would just as soon spit in God's eye as look at him. Christ died for you. Because of that, he can write this, starting with verse 28, and we know that in all things, which things? All, all things, God works for the good of those who love him. By the way, if you have a King James, it doesn't render it very well. It says all things work together for the good. And, and that's kind of the idea. But more specifically, it's not that the things themselves are doing the work. It's not that all things are good. All things are not good. Demon possession isn't good. Storms that kill people, not good. The circumstances in your life might not be good, but in all things, in those circumstances, God is working. He works those things for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For God, for those God knew, foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. In other words, if you are in Christ, check this out now, it is your destiny to be just like him. You will be perfected. You will be sanctified. And all of those battles that you feel like you're losing, you are destined to win. Because in Christ you cannot lose. Sorry, I spit a little when I talk. <laughs> Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to this? In response to this great, glorious, unbelievable thought that God has chosen you. What shall we say in response to this? This is worth memorizing. If God is for us, who can be against us? With Christ on our side, we have nothing to fear. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? In other words, if God was willing to give up his own son for you while you were his enemy, now that you are his child, do you really think that God would withhold any good thing from you. Therefore, this is where we begin to take a rational jump to, to doctrine. We apply what we learn in the scripture and we make this theology and doctrine. Therefore, if that is true of God, that he loved you so much that while you were his enemy, he sent his son to die in your place, then everything that comes into your life, good, bad, and ugly, every part of it, must be working together for your good somehow. It must be shaping you in His image. It must be preparing you for heaven. Because God wouldn't sacrifice Jesus and then say, well, 
Jesus was one thing, but taking care of this problem, that's too much to ask. I'm willing to give up everything. Oh, but not that. We need to readjust our thinking. We need to realign our thoughts with reality and truth so that we understand, as Paul writes, if God is for us, who can be against us? And in Christ, He is for us. He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also along with Him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who is He that condemns? The devil will bring accusations. The people around you will bring accusations. They will judge you. And it doesn't matter. God justifies. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, neither angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen and amen. With Christ on our side, we have nothing to fear. Not one little bit. He is sovereign over our circumstances. He is sovereign over every part of our lives. The God of creation is Lord of the deep and the demons. He is the master of all of the things that come into your life. And He never lets His child fall. Yes, bad things will happen. People will die. We need to come to terms with that. Because God doesn't operate according to our demands. He, he gives blessing to His children according to our needs. And every one of our hardships is working out a purpose. Let us pray. And let us get on board with that purpose in His sovereignty. Let's bow together. Father in, God, in heaven, You have given us your son while we were your enemies. Now that we are your children, your friends, why would we doubt that you have every part of this handled for us? We thank you for your promise that you made to Israel and to all of your children that when we go through it, you go through it with us. That when we ask where you are in the midst of our suffering, you are in the midst of our suffering with us. Working out your greater purpose according to your sovereignty. Thank you, Lord. Help us to embrace it. May you be glorified in all things through us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.